with the uh, wandering mind. You ever seen him during like the huddles? Cordy, my God, he's like, watching, <laughs> watching the dot racing on the jumbo train. <laughs> Anyway. In, fa- in fairness to him, he had a he had a he had a really good game on Saturday. Well, he, he only he only played like 16 minutes and had 18 yeah. points. Not to downplay Courtney Sims' achievements, but it does go along with the fact that he's at every every game he's played against bad big men. He has a great game, and Wisconsin was missing two of their big men due to ineligibility, and so they're they're pretty much just throwing out big tall white guys who really weren't doing anything and were in foul trouble <laughs> <laughs> and so I mean we'll have to see Courtney Sims have a good game against a good you know a good team inside before we uh, can say don't that. hold your breath for that one <laughs> <laughs> really. I'm just, well I, it was his best performance since Coppin State or <laughs> Chicago State Chicago. well whichever one came well it's nice to see Chris Hunter is the, is the big guy who's picked it up so hopefully if he can continue playing well I think we'll, we're doing okay inside well, I'm the, Chris the, big game Hunter the, the, and the the free throw shooting from uh, from both of those guys actually <laughs> Hunter shooting like seventy five percent Courtney Sims who was terrible last year having a great year at the the free throw line even Petway who's only shot like three is like made two <laughs> like, he's got a great percentage <laughs> everyone's doing good it's contagious <laughs> and Horton Horton's not missed you know like yeah, all year 30, he's not missed for like five in a row years or something now, like something. that he's thirty eight for thirty eight and in JJ Redick play. had missed like four in a game twice this year he's like he's lost he's it. Off. I think uh, Horton needs like eight more to tie the Big Ten conference record for most consecutive free throws made in conference play. And I wouldn't put Pressure. it past. I mean, he, he he seems like he's he's got a good stroke. I mean, what can you say? He looks he looks, and it's that's an important You know, Michigan with all these close games, it's important that they have a good free throw shooter. So another another good characteristic Horton showed this year. Yeah, DH. Good week for the basketball team. Hopefully, they could put up another one uh, this week. Make sure to tune in. Tomorrow night, 7.30 to the WCBN Sports Stream for Michigan Hockey against Western Michigan. But that's going to do it for Extra Points today. For Tony Bolton, Ted Pickus, Ravi Dev, and Stephanie Nicholas, I'm Steve Lake saying good night and go blue. When you feel and about to give up. Welcome to another WCBN Sports production here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Penny, back to pass. Blitz is coming, gets it away, and it's caught by Edwards. He streaks across and scores the touchdown. Braylon Edwards into the end zone again, and the Wolverines have put the points on the board. Will await the extra point, but the pressure now squarely on the shoulders of the Michigan Just State. Just to go with show. Well, uh, good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley and I'm a little out of breath. Uh, I'm going to talk a lot about uh, MLK tonight, as promised a couple weeks ago, but I'll dispose of a couple of quick items before we get to that. Um, the filibuster on Alito uh, obviously failed today, but it was uh, sort of... Uh, political kabuki theater, as uh, one commentator put it. Alito, I think we can start calling him Scalito, uh, because it uh, strikes me that his record is uh, more in line with uh, Judge Scalia than it would be with, say, Anthony Kennedy. And at the end of the day, um, what's happened here on the Supreme Court is basically Anthony Kennedy has become the swing vote replacing Sandra Day O'Connor. So, uh 
I think Roe versus Wade is uh, intact, but I think you'll see a variety of other issues uh, swing towards the conservative uh, viewpoint on a lot of things. And on this issue, by the way, of abortion, it's interesting to go back and examine the record, historical record, uh, that preceded the withdrawal of Harriet Myers, because much was made by the Republican Party during both the judiciary hearings and since uh, that vote uh, out of the judiciary regarding the Florida nomination of Alito, he's obviously going to be confirmed uh, with somewhere between 50 five and uh, 60 votes, not a ringing endorsement for his uh, viewpoints. But it's interesting that it was actually the conservatives that raised the issue of abortion to the extent that uh, Republicans began expressing doubts about her nomination. If you go back and you check the day before she withdrew her uh, proposed nomination back on uh, October 28th of this past year. What happened was the Washington Post uh, reported earlier that week that Mrs. Myers, Ms. Myers, uh, in a 1993 speech in Dallas, spoke approvingly, quote, about self-determination in resolving debates about law and religion, including those involving abortion rights and religion in public schools and public places. In the speech, Mrs. Myers, Ms. Myers continued, quote, the underlying theme in most of these cases is the insistence of more self-determination. The more I think about these issues, the more self-determination makes the most sense. Legislating religion or morality, we gave up on that a long time ago. And as a result of this speech, uh, Concerned Women for America, a social conservative group, uh, came out in public opposition of her nomination. And, of course, they tarred her with uh, the, no, the, fa- the fact that she had positively referred to several liberal women, including Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the actress Barbara Streisand, and Barbara Jordan. Quote, we find this Supreme Court nominee unqualified and her record troubling, the group's founder, Beverly LaHaye, said in a statement. Then, and this is in reference to the week of uh, October 27th, in a meeting earlier that week, David Vitter, a Louisiana Republican who opposes abortion rights, said he discussed the 93 speech with her at, quote, considerable length. And uh, Mr. Vitter uh, said he continued to question whether Ms. Myers had developed a quote, consistent, well-grounded, conservative judicial philosophy and wanted writings that predate the nomination to clarify her views. Senator Sam Brownback, Republican of the Judiciary Committee, said that the report added to his concerns, quote, I think she has a high hill to climb, said Brownback. So it was, in fact, the Republicans' concerns about Ms. Myers' views on abortion that led to her withdrawal, Uh, She's nestled back safely in the Bush White House, uh, undoubtedly coming up with uh, euphemisms for eavesdropping, such as foreign (laughs) surveillance of terrorism. And no doubt we'll hear Bush uh, in his upcoming State of the Union speech um, express concerns about that. Another thing that we'll uh, no doubt hear a little bit about is... uh, Bush's uh, notion of a savings account uh, 
concept for healthcare. Interesting to read a headline just the other day. Savings accounts for healthcare costs attract Wall Street. Uh, so don't uh, be fooled. Uh, these proposed savings accounts are going to do little to deal with uh, uh, the the rising healthcare costs and the fact that most Americans uh, are spending a lot more money on out-of-pocket medical expenses. In fact, the most recent Harper's Index has a little item that says the percentage changed since 2000 in the average amount U.S. workers spend on out-of-pocket medical expenses, 93%. In contrast, estimated amount the U.S. would save each year on paperwork if it adopted a single-payer health care system, $161 billion. And just from that Harper's Index, just one other interesting item. Percentage of Americans who say that fighting terrorism should be one of the nation's top priorities, six. So uh, that's uh, where things are at with that. Obviously, very interesting results from elections last week. Uh, we'll talk about Hamas in, up in an upcoming show when Jim Dwyer returns. By the way, he'll be back uh, um, in a probably a couple of weeks, and we'll do some rotating uh, shows with him that we'll tape in advance, and that schedule is still up in the air, but we'll get back to you on that. Also, the Canadian election, by the way, uh, Mr. Harper uh, won the election, but it's important to realize that he did not even get three out of eight votes in this election, so he, he, he enters office with a very weak quote-unquote mandate, and I think you'll see a very fragile uh, coalition government in Canada that no doubt will be replaced uh, in upcoming <laughs> uh, months probably. Uh, I think uh, most experts claim that there may be elections within even 18 months uh, given the status of uh, this most recent election uh, in which the rascals were thrown out. Um, liberals in Canada, of course, were engulfed in a uh, political scandal that's not unlike the Abramoff scandal. And we'll give the Bush administration a brain damage award for not producing the pictures. Needless to say, if Congress were controlled by the Democrats, there'd be subpoenas on those uh, pictures. Uh, but that's not going to happen with the Republicans in charge. But political pressure may force Bush ultimately to show the pictures. Uh, interesting to hear today that uh, the United States last year racked up a minus savings rate for the first time since the Great Depression. Uh, of course, tomorrow is the last day of Alan Greenspan's tenure as chairman of the Fed. Probably one more interest rate increase that Wall Street is giddily awaiting uh, a change in policy. The stock market, of course, went up last week after the weak fourth quarter GNP statistics under the I think mistaken belief that uh, interest rate increases will cease. I suspect uh, at least one, maybe two more rates. And as history has uh, shown, the new Federal Reserve chairman, when coming into power, uh, has raised rates four out of five times, uh, sort of in response and an indication that fighting inflation will be his main concern. So uh, we'll see if that proves true with uh, Ben Bernanke taking over uh, sometime on February 1st, almost in coincidence with Groundhog Day. So we'll see if Greenspan comes out of a gopher hole 
down in uh it's actually not a gopher but uh down there in uh Pennsylvania to see if you can see his shadow because needless to say his shadow uh I think uh has cast uh, long and deep over the American economy now for uh, the past 18 years uh, for both good and bad. Now, we also have a new uh, approval of public opinion polls regarding Bush's uh, rates. Uh, it's interesting to note, by the way, in the most recent uh, New York Times CBS poll, his approval rating is 42%, the same as last month. And this uh, agrees with other polls by ABC, CNN, etc., the L.A. Times, uh, which, of course, is gauging the public's mood on this uh, eavesdropping, wiretapping business that I think uh, the least we can say about that is uh, the more we just need to know more about who was wiretapped, when and why. And uh, hopefully uh, Arlen Specter will show some back backbone and get to the bottom of it. It's interesting, by the way, that uh, this shows um, that Bush has gone up a little bit since last uh, summer uh, and even a little bit since November. Um, In November, early November of this past year, his approval rating was 35%, the lowest of his presidency. But Bush also has very high disapproval numbers, so not much has changed uh, in the past uh, three months uh, Bush is still mired in uh, very problematic territory, and uh, this appears at the moment to indicate that uh, Bush may be uh, leading the Republican Party to defeat in congressional elections this November. It's interesting that Lincoln Chafee, by the way, is the only Republican on record to oppose the Adlito, um nomination, at least publicly, He's, of course, a liberal Republican from Rhode Island, one of the only remaining ones. Rhode Island is a heavily Democratic state, so uh, he's up for re-election this year, and his vote probably, you know, it's interesting. Rhode Island is, uh, as I believe, statistically the most Catholic state in America, and it's one of the most Democratic and liberal states in terms of voting. So it's obvious that he's listening to his constituents, not his party. And I think the record has shown that he's voted against his party 53% of the time, which is uh, interesting. But unfortunately, Arlen Specter, don't call me single bullet theory, uh, caved in on uh, Alito and did not, uh, at the end of the day, stand up for his belief in the so-called right to choose, um, but instead accommodated his conservative companions in the Senate. And I think that that will unfortunately be part of his legacy. He could have stopped the Alito nomination as the party line vote showed uh, just last week. One final item before we uh, talk a little bit about Martin Luther King. And I, of course, make the reference to the single bullet theory because Harlan Specter was the architect of that theory back uh, in the early 60s uh, when he worked for the Warren Commission uh, with respect to the assassination of John F. Kennedy in which, of course, many unanswered questions still remain. In yesterday's uh, uh, Ann Arbor News, there was a, excuse me, a review, book review of uh, this new book uh, by James Risen, State of War, The Secret History of the CIA and the Bush Administration, just recently published, by the way, by Free Press. 
And uh, this is the um, author, columnist by the New York Times, who uh, exposed this uh, eavesdropping surveillance program by the Bush administration that, by the way, is clearly a violation of the FISA Act. Um, The Bush administration has made the argument that they don't need to uh, get wiretaps uh, approval with you know not they don't need to go through the FISA court because of expediency when the facts show that the wiretap law allows them in fact 70 72 hours to eavesdrop without a warrant so they have not explained to the public satisfactorily why they needed to go around this law on the one hand or on the other hand why they have in clear matter of fact violated the separation of powers and are allowing neither the judiciary or the Congress uh, in their role uh, in our constitutional government. These, of course, in my opinion, are impeachable offenses, high crimes and misdemeanors. But uh, obviously, Bush can, the Republican Party controls Congress, so this won't happen. But in the review by James Banford, who, by the way, is... Uh, One of the NSA, he's a former NSA person who's written two very interesting books about the history of the NSA. So uh, check out his books alone. But in reviewing this article, he has this interesting paragraph. He writes, while Risen's, and he's reviewing the book here, revelations about the NSA take up only one chapter in State of War, they are a They are the dramatic high point in a book focusing on the Bush administration's use and misuse of power over the past four years. It's a record, Risen says, that has even caused protests from Bush's former, his father, former President George H. Walker Bush. Risen writes of a conversation between the two in 2003 in which the current president, quote, angrily hung up the telephone. George Herbert Walker Bush, Risen writes, was, quote, disturbed that his son was allowing Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld and a cadre of neoconservative ideologues to exert broad influence over foreign policy, particularly concerning Iraq, unquote. So in honor of that, I wrote up this little ditty, Georgie Porgy Puddin and Pie his dad called about Iraq and made him cry. No matter the truth, Georgie proceeded to lie as thousands of Americans and Iraqis continued to die. Or maybe I should have uh, wrote, uh, continued to lie and as thousands of Iraqis proceeded to die. Because it's a little unclear when this uh, 2003 conversation took place, but it's a book that I'll be reading in upcoming weeks to uh, get my own uh, perspective on Bush and the eavesdropping controversy uh, that promises maybe to have some interesting congressional hearings in uh, upcoming weeks. I talked to an expert the other day in the cab, whose name I won't mention, took him to the airport uh, as he was attending the conference, but he's a well-known political figure here in Ann Arbor, and he was making the observation that when Congress's power is threatened, or that re-election is threatened, Congress has a tendency to stand up for uh, this vague principle of separation and powers because their power is being jeopardized perhaps by the president. So we need to know about more about who he was eavesdropping, when and why, and why he pers- pers- pursued this policy of violating the FISA law.
Now, a couple of weeks ago, um, I saw part of a documentary on the History Channel about the assassination of Martin Luther King, a story that continues to fascinate me uh, regarding the some of the unanswered questions about uh, what really happened back in uh, April of 1968. You know, it's interesting to note historically that just five days before that, Lyndon Johnson had announced that he was not going to pursue re-election. And he had won the uh, New Hampshire primary, but a strong finish by Joe, McCar- uh, Joe McCarthy, Eugene McCarthy, who recently passed away, sort of forced uh, Lyndon Johnson to recognize the fact that he was an incredibly weak, weakened president at that point because of the problems uh, that the Vietnam War was beginning to uh, take on his popularity and his credibility. Uh, the phrase, the credibility gap, by the way, started back in uh, the uh, mid-60s regarding uh, Lyndon Johnson's uh, continued uh, nonsense in Vietnam. And uh, I think the credibility gap uh, has never been wider than today, uh, because I think if you look at Bush's presidency so far, he's has no credibility left. He's beyond uh, have, having spent his political capital. His political capital is this is zero at this point, in my opinion. But uh, in seeing this documentary on the uh, History Channel, uh, something that I'm sure they replay from time to time, it's interesting that um, the presentation on the History Channel takes probably the preeminent uh, historian that's investigated this uh, case um, versus the uh, interesting Gerald Posner. And, of course, the uh, historian in question is Philip Melanson, uh, who teaches history uh, at some, I believe, northeastern Massachusetts. And um, I I remember that he's a professor from some state college in Massachusetts, and he's written a couple of books about it, including his first one entitled The Merkin Conspiracy. But I've been uh, rereading some concerns and review of the trial that occurred down in Memphis a couple of years ago, back in 1998, in which Lloyd Jowers was actually convicted in a civil um, trial as being involved in the Martin Luther King assassination. Lloyd Jowers was the person that owned the grill that... uh, James Earl Ray allegedly uh, rented a room there, and this grill is where the assassination itself was um, planned. And in a book uh, that reviews a bunch of literature from this uh, ma- this sort of obscure left-wing magazine by, uh, entitled Probe, they have a number of essays about uh, the assassination that, of course, raise questions. Uh, and these questions, of course needless to say, are not really answered um, by the American government or even the local government regarding um, the actual sort of murky um, truth about some of the aspects of the King assassination. And uh, one of the interesting characters in the uh, book uh, emerges as a Judge Brown who 
It's my understanding he has a TV show, and I've never seen this guy on TV, but it, apparently it's one of these sort of Judge Judy, Judge Wapner kind of goofy things that, uh, unfortunately, more Americans pay attention to that sort of crapola than they do the actual workings of the Supreme Court. And as I once noted, uh, 9% of the American people back in the 1980s knew who Judge Rehnquist was, who at the time was uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and 70% knew who Judge Wapner was. But in any case, uh, Judge Brown uh, actually heard evidence regarding um, these motions that were filed in the civil uh, trial uh, in which the King family, uh, specifically Dexter and Coretta Scott King, introduced uh, motions to reintroduce a trial. And I'll just read some of the uh, comments that he makes because uh, they're interesting. Uh, He says, quote, it's obvious from looking at everything in that case file that the matter is not resolved. There's no way an intelligent, reasonable person can examine what's in the file, what's in this case, and say that we have one individual who's in the penitentiary who is solely responsible for the death of Martin Luther King. In this case, what it was all about is somebody was attempting to take the tact that we have this, quote, demon of world communism facing our great democracy, and we need to take steps to protect it from those who would tear it down. When King stepped over the line from just being about civil rights oriented to dealing with the economy and labor and talking about the Vietnam War, then that whole thing kicked in. It's not about James Earl Ray. It's about what else was going on out there. You've got the itinerary. Who paid for it? That's the one thing you need to look at. How was the hotel paid for? The airline fare? Where did it come from? Track down the passports that were seized. What's the common thread with the individuals that are subjects to fake identifications? How would someone go about acquiring this information? We talked about the rifle yesterday, which was the subject of an inquiry that I conducted. It's not there. Not the right type of rifle. It's never been sighted. Wrong kind of scope. Wrong kind of equipment. A person who does not know how to use it. Metallurgical analysis excludes the bullet from the body of Dr. King from coming from the cartridge case that they say was fired from that rifle. That so-called dent in the windowsill is a complete red herring. Because one, if you're a rifleman, you simply do not rust a bare rifle on a hard surface. You're guaranteed to miss your target. You've got a downward trajectory, which would require someone to aim under the target in order to hit it at what you're shooting at. These things that you require some experience with. You've got an odd distance involved in the shooting, especially from the claimed location of the shot. With a 30.06, it makes it particularly difficult shooting downhill in the circumstances that you had. You don't have the thing that adds up to what you need. And by the way, Martin Luther King's wounds indicate that the shot came from below uh, based on the trajectory of, of the wound, based on the autopsy information that I've read. Um, then you have this interesting claim made by an FBI agent named Donald Wilson, who's interviewed uh, in the book Assassinations, the, the probe perspective on this by James D. Uh, Eugenio, in which he talks about this. He's the guy, by the way, that found uh, James O'Reilly's alleged white Mustang in Atlanta. And he notes in creating, some, you know, in being involved in surveillance with a, quote, the greatest manhunt in history, 
he he says this. He says, after we found Ray's car through a records check, it was learned that he had rented a room in Atlanta. We put that room under surveillance 24, hour, 24 hours a day. No activity was seen. So I'm finishing my surveillance shift, which ended at midnight. My fellow agent and I left the area of the rooming house, and there was a diner nearby, well-lighted, and we had the wanted flyer. We approached the diner, and this man comes out, and I'm looking at the picture of the guy and says, this is the guy. That's the guy, isn't it? Yes. I radioed the FBI office. I told them what was transpiring. I wanted approval to approach the guy and ask for identification. They said, stand by. I wait. A few moments later, the radio operator comes back on, quote, discontinue and return to the federal building. Take no further action. I was kind of stunned. I said, could you repeat that, please? And they gave me this message again. The next day, I asked my supervisor if I should do a report. He said, no, that's not necessary. Don't worry about it. You're a new agent. You're going to be transferred to your second office. That way, you just might be called back. It would be a big hassle for you. Don't worry about it. So here's an FBI agent who actually spotted James Earl Ray in Atlanta shortly after the assassination and was told by the FBI not to even identify him, let alone arrest him. And then he goes on to continue about what he found in Ray's car. By the way, the, the Mustang in Atlanta was found um, with a bunch of cigarette butts in the ashtray and uh, apparently other fingerprints that were never investigated. And James Earl Ray, by the way, was known not to be a smoker, so it indicates that he probably fled Atlanta, fled Memphis to Atlanta with an accomplice of some sort. He talks about the papers that he found in the uh, in the book in, in the car, the white Mustang. He says uh, Pepper, and this is the uh, author William Pepper of a book called Orders to Kill uh, that I recommend people read for its perspective on some unanswered questions about the Martin Luther King case. It's a very detailed book with a lot of um, interesting coincidences about the surveillance of MLK in which the uh, U.S. military and U.S. military intelligence were actually involved in the surveillance of Martin Luther King in addition to the FBI. And by the way, military intelligence